You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. So the month of May is the month where we have been honoring our women. And in a society like ours today, womanhood is attacked from seemingly every side. Um, And I want to thank God for His grace on the women in our church. You know, yesterday we had the 24 hours of prayer, and we had five of our ladies who taught us and spoke into us. And I was thinking last night as I was praying here in the auditorium, um, those five ladies who spoke, they just represent all of the ladies in our church. Um, Godly women who have not uh, ditched or thrown aside womanhood and have taken uh, the the femininity of womanhood and embraced it. And I thank God for it. We've been going through Paul's letter to Titus here the last few weeks, and Pastor Capace has been highlighting verses uh, 4 and 5. Verse 5 says, women are to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the Word of God. Unfortunately, submission for many in our society has become a trigger word for inequality. It's a way for men to tell women, shut up and know your place. When this is then compiled with an unhealthy view within the church, which is, don't criticize the man of God or you're going to be eaten by a she-bear. And when you compile these two ideas, we can create a culture within the church where women are shunned and neglected and even silenced. But I want to submit to you this morning, that submission is only repulsive if it's removed from its symbolic purpose of submitting ourselves to God. Now, I'm going to unpack this statement over the next few minutes, and we're going to take a look at, at what I mean by this. But I want, to, I want to give you this statement, and then we'll unpack it. So, We're looking at Titus, but we can almost see a copy and paste in the book of Ephesians when Paul says, wives, this means submit yourselves to your husband as to the Lord. So wives are supposed to submit to husbands, but in the verse before, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence and fear. You see, marriage is symbolic of the partnership that God wants with all of us. When we look at the garden, we see a God who ruled the world by inviting his creatures to share in his creation, both in relationship and partnership. So God invites mankind, both male and female, to share in his rule. In Genesis 1:26, God says, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that what? So that they may rule." Rulership was not to be men ruling over women. Rulership was to be men and women ruling alongside of each other. We are made to rule, but ruling in the kingdom of God looks quite differently than the ruling we find in earthly kingdoms. To rule in God's vocabulary, and catch this, this is so important, ruling in God's vocabulary means to care for one another. And so we're looking at this idea of submission, but if we're going to understand this idea of submission... We have to pause and we have to understand this idea of ruling. Because in God's kingdom, ruling 
looks like serving. We can find ourselves in big trouble if we take our perverted idea of ruling and insert it into God's Word. Do you, you hear what I said there? We can take what we think about ruling, that's our vocabulary, and we insert that word into the Bible, which talks about ruling, and all of a sudden the Bible means something completely different. The sermon this morning is entitled, Ruling Alongside. I think if we can see the big picture of the story of the Bible and what marriage represents, we will see our role as the church is to all be submissive women. Submitting ourselves to our loving groom who laid down his life for us. And the women in the church, in our church, in the church as a whole, have the opportunity to model this to their children in the way they submit to their husbands. We could say that a, a, a wife's failure to submit to her husband is reflective of all of our failure to submit to God. So the agenda this morning is to highlight what it looks like to rule in the kingdom of God. Now for our classroom today, we're going to dissect a story in the book of Kings. But really, if we wanted to, we could literally put our hand, hand in a hat and pick any story in the Old Testament and it would do for what I'm wanting to do today. I've been reading through First and Second Kings this month and um, here's one of my favorite words, recapitulatory. Uh, the same thing just keeps happening over and over and over and over. Uh, you, you, you read it and it's like, wait, I just read that. Yep, it's happening again. And what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve just plays itself out over and over and over again. The story is going to make my case for how humanity has taken our God-given task of ruling with and used it to rule over each other. God tells men and women, I want you to rule with each other, and we try to rule over each other. And so in our society today, we have men that are attempting to rule over women, and we have women who are attempting to rule over men, and this conflict is going back and forth when the whole time they're supposed to be hand in hand ruling with and alongside their creator God. Now, as we jump into the book of Kings, we've got to explain a few things first. Uh, Kings is one of those books, be honest with me, uh, if you're reading through the Bible, you kind of get through it quickly. Um, and that's a shame. <laughs> Actually, Kings is one of the most interesting books in the Bible if you've already read the rest of the Bible and if you actually see what's going on. And if you view the Bible as a story and you read it from front to back, from start to finish, and then you go back and you read Kings and you see what's going on with the kings, oh my goodness, there's so much there. God created a world where humans were to rule and multiply, and their offspring would rule. And this was all under the watch of the ruler, Yahweh, the creator God. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read, But when they said, talking about Israel, Give us a king to lead us, this, dis this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to, to Yahweh, and Yahweh told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not that they have rejected, it is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. You see, God wanted a world in which his creatures that he had created, human beings, ruled together, male and female, and he was their king. Down in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 8, God says, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign, what's the next word, over 
them will claim as his rights. When the people of God rejected Yahweh as their king, and when they wanted a king like the other nations, Yahweh wants to know the people, okay, I'll give you a king, but just know when you have a king that you've chosen for yourself, a tall, handsome, mighty warrior, Saul, uh, when you choose a king for yourself, he's going to reign over you. And he goes on to say the king will take your sons to serve as warriors, daughters to serve as cooks, and other things. He's going to take the best of your fields for crops for himself. He's going to take your servants. He's going to take the best of your livestock. Do you see what's going on here? When you choose a king, God says, that king is going to rule over you, and he's going to take everything from you, which is the exact opposite of the way that God rules. In the kingdom of God, God is creating humans to share. And he says, I'm going to share my rule with you. And we just start reading the Bible, and all of a sudden we come to Nimrod. And then we come to the kings. And then we just keep flipping, and over and over and over, we have human kings that want to rule over people, and they want to use people for their benefit, the opposite of God's kingdom. Listen to what God says to Samuel. When the day comes, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. I want to submit to us as we talk about this idea of the kings and this book, First and Second Kings, which is, which is one book in the Hebrew Bible. I want to submit to us that Israel needed a king, but one that would rule them by caring for them rather than taking advantage of them. So we start reading Kings, and we start off with David. And Kings doesn't really go too much into Saul. We find that in First and Second Samuel. But we have Saul, which was the king that the people chose. And Samuel and God, both of them said, yeah, that's fine, that'll be your king. But it was the king the people wanted. And then we're given the king that God chose. David is the king who's the man after what? He's the man after God's own heart. This is God's hand-picked king. How does he do? Not well. Well, why not? This is God's choice. Yeah, humans don't do very well when they sit in the seat of God. Even the best humans, when they're given the authority that belongs to God— they crumble under that position because humans were not meant to be in that position. Then we have Solomon, and by the time we get to David and Bathsheba, and then Solomon, his son, whoo! How many of you read Kings before? Like, it just starts spiraling out of control and really, really fast. It's like, it's like here's, here's the first four kings of Israel. Y'all, y'all ready? Okay, we've got Saul. Meh, okay. We got David. Pretty good king. Uh, we got Solomon. Ooh, he starts off really good, asks for wisdom, and then whew, really bad by the end of his life. By the time we get to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, we've got such a, such a crazy place called Israel that it's not even recognizable as the, the people of God or the nation of God's people because Rehoboam and then Jeroboam and the kingdom splits and they're worshiping other gods and bringing in which started with Solomon it's just a big mad mess would you look with me at this map so it's very rare that I'm ever going to show you a map while I'm preaching (laughs) Um, so if I do it's important all right so if if you miss this part of the sermon you're going to miss pretty much the whole chapter 22 of kings. Um, On the top we have Israel, and on the bottom we have Judah. This is the divided kingdom because Rehoboam, when he became king, he raised taxes, 
and Jeroboam split and went up and ruled half the country on top, and Judah is half the country on bottom. On the bottom, we have the capital, which is Jerusalem, right? That's where the temple is. On the top, we have Samaria. Now, when you go and read Kings, you can just jot, make a little mark every time uh, a king is mentioned. And every time a king is mentioned in Kings, the author tells us this king did good in God's eyes, this king did bad in God's eyes. And the kings of Israel, which are on top, there was 20 kings, and they were 0 for 20 doing what was right in God's eyes. They all did evil. Uh, The most notorious of the northern king, you all know, it's Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Yeah, that's what we're talking about today. All right, we'll get there. Uh, The the, the southern kingdom, uh, there was 20 kings also. And there was eight that did right in God's eyes and 12 that did wrong in God's eyes. All right, does that make sense? Are we together on that? If we're together on that, we can move forward. But we have this divided kingdom, and they're going against each other rather than going with each other. Okay, that's the sermon. We get to 1 Kings 22, and this is the story that we're going to look at this morning. 1 Kings 22, verse 1, for three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. All right, so we start off, and we're in a place of peace, right? There's no war for how many years? Three years. All right, how many years is there no war? Say it out loud. Three years, no war. Does that mean everything's okay? No, verse 2, but in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel, and what he, the king of Judah, and he, the king of Israel, are going to talk about is that there's no war between them and Aram, but Aram still has the city that belongs to them. And we'll get there in a second. I want to point out something very interesting in uh, verse 2. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. All right, today, just for a segment of this sermon, you're in my classroom. So act like my students and respond out loud to me. Ready? Uh, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. Now that's important. He's the king of Judah. And um, as the king of Judah, he goes where to see who? He goes down. Uh, Can we see that map again? Judah's on the bottom, the south, and the author tells us he goes down. What's going on here? Um, Yeah, this is uh, actually a Hebrew colloquialism. Anytime in the Hebrew Bible we see that someone goes down, uh, the author is uh, eloquently telling us something really bad's about to happen, okay? So he actually goes up, but the author tells us he goes down, all right? But, there, but, but in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. Now, we already know the king of Israel is Ahab. And I'm going to remind you, because I know you probably haven't read 1 Kings this uh, month, or, or maybe even recently. Uh, let me remind you what just happened before 1 Kings 22. Uh, we have Ahab and Mount Carmel. Now, all of us hopefully remember Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is when there's the big showdown between Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, and all of the prophets of Baal. And Ahab is the king of Israel, and him and Jezebel worship Baal. Yeah, remember, we're already spiraled down to the point where the king and the queen of Israel in the north, not only are they not worshiping Yahweh, not only have they welcomed in other gods, no, they're killing the prophets of Yahweh. That's how bad things have gotten. And so we have this big showdown where Ahab, the king of Israel, um, and the prophet of Yahweh, Elijah, have this showdown on the mountain, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and boom, uh, we all know the story. But this is what has just happened. So we already know, everybody, my students with me, Ahab the king and Jezebel his wife worship who? Baal. All right? They don't worship Yahweh. They hate Yahweh. They want out from under his authority. They worship Baal. Let's go to verse 3. The king of Israel, Ahab, had said to his officials, 
don't, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? It's been three years now that the king of Aram has this land that belongs to us. Let's do something about it. Verse number, five, uh, verse number four. So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Ah, here we go. We've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they're coming together. This is going to be good, right? Well, remember, the author already told us we're going down. <laughs> not not going to be good. All right, so Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, Ahab, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first, seek the counsel of... Now look in your handouts. Uh, We've got two words in your handouts. Both of them are Lord. Uh, But one of them is all caps, and one of them is lowercase Lord. And this is really unfortunate about our um, it's really unfortunate about our English Bibles. Pastor Capacey just preached on this recently. I know Pastor Jeremy holds my uh, frustration about this, which is why he uses the Holman Standard Bible, which says Yahweh, because this is confusing. Uh, you're reading through here and you see Lord, Lord, but actually uh, in the Hebrew Bible, when, whenever we see the Lord and it's all caps, it's the name of God. It's Yahweh. And I won't take time in this sermon to tell you why it's Lord and not Yahweh. That's a rabbit trail about not offending Jews today. Uh, uh, r- r- uh, rabbis and, and, uh, and, and actual religious Jews today. Uh, but that's another story for another day. See me afterward. We'll go out for coffee and talk about it. Here's the point. And, and, and I, I bring this up not to like talk to you about something that doesn't matter. Like sometimes I'm listening to a preacher and they're bringing up Greek and Hebrew. And I'm just like, what does that have to do with anything? This matters for the whole story. If you miss this, you miss the whole story. Jehoshaphat is the king of the south, and he worships Yahweh. Ahab is the king of the north, and he worships Baal. Jehoshaphat goes to visit Ahab, and the two of them are talking about, let's go get this land back. And Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, all right, let's do it. And Jehoshaphat says, well, wait, why don't we consult with Yahweh? So let's keep reading. So the king of Israel, Ahab, brought together the prophets, about 400 men. Now, we already are cued in on this story to whose prophets these are. We already know these are not prophets of Yahweh. And Ahab asked these 400 prophets, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? The 400 prophets, they say, go! They answered, for Adonai will give it into the king's hand. So here's the lowercase lord which in English is just Lord, but in Hebrew is Adonai. And Adonai means Lord, which could refer to Yahweh, but it also could refer to any Lord or master. It could refer to Baal. So we can replace, to help us out, we can replace these words with Lord, all caps, Yahweh, Lord, lowercase, Baal. And when we read the story then, it makes a lot more sense. But Jehoshaphat asked Ahab, is there no longer a prophet of Yahweh here who, can inquire, who we can inquire of? Ahab answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah, Jehoshaphat replies, the king shouldn't say such a thing. So Ahab called one of his officials and said, all right, fine. Uh, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Now, the rest of the story is really fascinating. Uh, uh, Micaiah, the the prophet of Yahweh, the only one left, he comes into Ahab and he kind of is sarcastic at first. And then he tells Ahab, you're going to go to war and you're going to die. And one of the prophets of Ahab comes up and smacks this prophet across the face. Um, smacks him in the face, and then Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, see, I told you. I, I told you he's going to bring us bad news. So Ahab takes the one prophet of Yahweh who says that he's going to die, and he throws him in jail. And Micaiah, the prophet of Yahweh, says, okay, fine, throw me in jail. 
when you, when you do or do not come back from war, we're going to know if I'm right or not. And you know the rest of the story. Ahab, um, he does not go to war in his royal chariot. He puts a dummy in the royal chariot. And he goes to war in another chariot. It's just a common wagon. Uh, not, no kings are going to ride in that. And a random arrow flies through the sky, through the chariot, strikes him in the heart, and he, he dies. I think there is an extremely powerful spiritual truth here. Ahab's prophets applauded him right to his death. Ahab created a culture where those who told him what he liked to hear were brought close but those who told him what he did not want to hear were pushed away. And I would say this one thing to all of us today, whatever your culture looks like, whether we're talking about your home or your workplace, the more you push people away who tell you what you don't like to hear, the fewer there will be. And you're going to create a culture where everyone around you is saying, good job, even though you might be walking straight into your death. This is exactly what happened to Ahab. You see, Ahab sought to rule over his subjects and to have no one rule over him. So he chose for himself an Adonai. He, Ahab chooses an Adonai for himself. And this Adonai, this Adonai, this Lord, this master, this God of Ahab's is going to tell him what he wants to hear. That he could be like God, knowing good and evil. And then Ahab surrounds himself in his throne room with advisors who say, good job. That's the culture that Ahab created, and he's ruling over his subjects, not serving them. And his subjects are so terrified for their own lives that they applaud and they say, you're doing great, please don't kill us. When humans seek to rule apart from God rather than alongside with God, we rule over each other rather than alongside one another. And the Old Testament is one long story of how bad things got when humans rule apart from God. But you know, hidden in plain sight in this very story, we're actually able to peek in to another throne room. Would you look with me at verses 19 to 22? Mickey, I continued... Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. So who's Mickey? He's the prophet. And how do prophets uh, receive words from the Lord? Well, one of the ways they receive, receive words from the Lord is through visions, right? And so he has a vision, and uh, he's going to take us into his vision. How many of you are ready to go with Mickey into his vision? Okay, here it is. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab in attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his uh, death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. Uh, Yahweh asked, how are you going to do it? Uh, the Spirit says, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of Ahab's prophets. Yahweh says, all right, uh, go do it. You're going to be successful. Now, what the author is doing is the author is telling us the story of Ahab, 
But in telling us the story of Ahab, we get a sneak peek into the divine throne room. And what we learn about the divine throne room is that the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings takes suggestions from his created beings. Wow. The all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, full of wisdom, immortal creator God who knows the end from the beginning is taking suggestions from mere mortals. If God is all wise, why is he taking suggestions? If God knows what will happen, and by the way, how many of you think God could put lies in the prophets of Baal himself? Why, 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 is he, why does he have a messenger? Why is he sending messengers? Why is he taking opinions? It's the same reason that God created human beings from the dust. We're dirt balls. We're nothing. Everything that we have and everything that we are is because of him and he is the sustainer of life. And yet that God has chosen to create a world where you get to make a suggestion and he takes your suggestion. And it's not just us. It's the spiritual beings too. That's another sermon for another day. If you want to read more on this, get Michael Heiser's book, Supernatural. It's one of my top 10 favorite books for Christians. Supernatural, Michael Heiser. You'll love it, I promise. But here's the point. God takes suggestions. How does God rule? Does God rule over? Well, certainly he could. And he is, above it all, one of our favorite songs here at Gospel Light is, you reign above it all, you reign above it all. I'm sorry for singing. I'll shut up. All right. Um, yeah, you reign above it all. How many of you can give me a good hearty amen, Yahweh reigns above it all? Amen. Yeah, he reigns above it all. So God does reign above it all, but God has chosen to rule with us. Uh, more homework for you. Go read Psalm chapter 8, and you're gonna, you're, you and me are just as mystified as King David was. What is man that you are mindful of him? Oh, you have told him to rule over. Wow. The gospel light, that's not all. In the story of the Bible, the God who rules over humans rules by serving his subjects. When humanity usurped God's authority, God humbled himself and served the needs of his mortal creatures. The Old Testament presents us with a story of how God married a nation. <laughs> Um, I love this idea of marriage in the Bible. Some of you know uh, I'm actually writing a book on it. Um, so there's my plug, and um, I'll force you all to read it when I, when I write it. Um, the, the theme or the motif of marriage is on the second page of the Bible, and it goes all the way to the fifth to last verse of the Bible. And as I already said in this sermon, marriage is a symbol of what God wants in us and with us in this divine human partnership. But in the Old Testament, God marries who? He marries a nation. God marries a nation, the nation of Israel. And God was faithful to his bride. Then, as the prophet Hosea paints it, God's wife left him to become a prostitute. But God goes and pays the debt off his unfaithful wife owed to her lovers and welcomes her back as his wife. In the most beautiful story ever told, God becomes the faithful wife that Israel could not be, and he is also the faithful husband that welcomes his wife back after she has been unfaithful. My goodness, that was a lot in a little there. Let me say it one more time. I'll say it slowly. 
The story of the Bible is where God is the faithful groom, but the wife he has chosen is unfaithful, so God steps into humans' time and space and becomes the faithful bride, and now God is the faithful groom and the faithful bride. That's the gospel. Jesus was the faithful human who perfectly submitted to Yahweh, and Jesus was also the faithful king who acted like God serving the needy. So hear me carefully. When we say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human, we include that he perfectly acted like God acts, and he perfectly acted like humans were created to act, submitting himself to God. It is Jesus, it is in Jesus that we can be restored to manhood and womanhood. But now comes the twist in the story. So we said Jesus was the faithful Israel, the faithful bride to God. But the twist in the story is that we, the church, are called to be Israel. Now, if your mind just went to a nation a long ways away that was started in 1948, you missed the whole point. <laughs> um, no, Israel's the faith, is the unfaithful bride. Israel's supposed to be the bride, right? This is a partnership that God wants with humans, and it's not individual people that God wants to partner with. It's people that God wants to partner with. And God chooses for himself a nation, and they're going to be his bride, and they fail, And so Jesus is the true Israel who comes in and is faithful. But now God invites you and me to be Israel. We are called to be the people of God who partner with him to rule together in God's creation project. This is what we call new creation. And by the way, if you want to rule in new creation, you've got to be a new creature which means old things are passed away and all things are become new and you are now a new creature who has been born again, who has now entered into this new creation launch of which Jesus was the firstborn. There's a lot there. Wow. It's all, it's, it's, it's all there. It's the story of the Bible. 2022 is here and we are surrounded by a world who is so confused by gender. My goodness, what is going on? And now we as Christians are stuck in this culture where we have to be loving and kind, but not agree with insanity. Um, Church, let me give you some wise words that I heard from a pastor recently. Love doesn't mean you have to agree. Love does not require agreement. We find ourselves in a world that is so confused by gender, but the irony is, in the story of the Bible, we are all women because we are all called into the divine marriage where we submit to Jesus. Or to put it like Paul does, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. The human distinctions of gender and the human entity of marriage are divinely chosen to lift our eyes to the greater relationship and partnership that he wants with us. Or to put it like C.S. Lewis puts it, Look at your handouts. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings, which no marriage, no travel, no learning, 
can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everybody knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. And the hotels and scenery have been excellent. And chemistry yeah, may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This other world that Lewis refers to is the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, ruling equals caring for. And submitting or submission then means that we allow God to care for us. Hear me carefully. In the garden, it was not God saying to humans, obey me or else. Go read it. That's not what it looked like. In the garden, it was, here's everything I've created, and I created it with you in mind. Go flourish and rely on me because I'm going to care for you. But we want to care for ourselves. I don't need help. Isn't it so ironic that in our culture, submission looks like a man saying to a woman, shut up and go sit down. Go into the kitchen. Know your place. Do what you're supposed to do. But when we look at submission in the Bible, submission is you and me letting God care for us. And now you see why Paul wrote this to the church. Because it's really stinking hard for wives to let their husbands care for them. From the age my children could walk, they don't want help. I can do this on my own. I've got this. Stop giving me your opinion. And by the way, we're talking about submission and we're remembering the symbol of marriage, right? Because Paul tells us submit to each other. So, hey, news for all of the men out there, we're supposed to submit to our wives. Wait, what? Yeah, it, what's going on here is this picture of marriage that's, that's showing us that we're all failing to submit to God, which means we fail to let him care for us. We've got this. We're going to do it on our own. I don't need any help. I can rely on myself. I don't want your opinion. And by the way, if you give me your opinion and I don't like it, I'm going to push you away. And I'm going to choose for myself friends and surround myself with people who tell me that I'm doing a good job and they like what I'm telling them to do and I'll submit to them because <laughs> they're, they're telling me good job. Isn't it funny that we can find ourselves surrounding ourselves with friends who are all applauding to us and our spouse is over there? By the way, who's the spouse? The spouse is the one that said, till death do us part. The spouse is the one that said, no matter what, better or worse, richer or poorer, I'm staying with you. The one that we should be able to trust the most. The one that God has brought into our lives to be there and be honest with us and be vulnerable and naked and, and pull everything back and say, this is who I am. We push them away and we pull in advice from other people. Listen, church family, I'm 35 years old. I don't have it all figured out, but I've counseled marriages a long, long enough to know this truth. Every time I counsel a marriage, it's always the same recapitulatory. It's always the same. We have a woman, and she's going around to all of her friends and family, and they're all telling her things about the man. And it's exactly what she wants to hear. Instead of ruling with, she wants to rule over. And now the man feels insecure, and he feels threatened. And so what's his response? Anger. How dare you talk to me like that? 
I'm the king of this home. And he wants to rule over. And she wants to rule over. And before you know it, the outside world is looking at us and the marriage idea is supposed to be lifting their heads to the real thing. And they're looking at us and they're like, a divine proposal? God wants a relationship with me? (laughs) I'm good. And before long, generation after generation passes along and all of a sudden people view God as this vicious guy up in the sky who's looking down at them and saying, you do what I tell you to do. Because in fairness, that's a lot of times how earthly fathers rule. I got some good news for you, church family. I got some really good news for you. On the last page of the Bible, we have an incredible story. The Spirit and the Bride. Now, y'all know who the Spirit is. He's, He's living inside of you. He dwells in you. You're the temple. And on the last page of the Bible, we have the Spirit and we have the Bride. Who's the Bride? It's the church. And we're waiting for the marriage. Uh, Tricia, the, 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 the Holy Spirit is the wedding coordinator. Uh, he, he's preparing the bride for the wedding day. He, he's, he's, getting the, he's getting the bride ready to go. And on the last page of the Bible, we have the Spirit and the bride, and they say to everyone else, who's everyone else? Everybody who's not the bride. Everybody who's not the church, they say to everybody else, come and drink from the water of life. Anybody who's thirsty, you can come. This is the story of God, and this is what evangelism looks like, by the way. Evangelism is you and me who are spotted, unfaithful whores who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and we say to the world, come and drink of the water that I've tasted from. Oh my goodness, this is it, church family. This is what this, is what this church needs. This is what this world needs. In a world of division where everyone's fighting and trying to rule over, did you hear what that politician said? Did you hear what they said? And everybody's afraid and fighting. We need good news, and the good news is that you and me are being invited into a marriage. Oh, and this marriage is a God who loves you and who has given himself for you. For better or worse, for richer or poorer, boy, God got the bad end of that one. And he loves, and his love is unconditional. Can I tell you, wives, something that's going to be really unpopular? You have an opportunity to show your children what it looks like to submit to God by submitting to your husbands. And the crazy part of it is, you think it would be easy for us to submit to God because he's perfect, but we don't. And now we're being asked to submit to our husbands who are not perfect. Here's the truth. If you attempt to do this apart from the Spirit, you don't have a chance. What Chloe and Kelsey, I've always been against preachers who call their kids names in the sermon, and I just did it. Sorry, Chloe and Kelsey. Uh, What Chloe and Kelsey need is they need a mom who's humble enough to say, I don't like that opinion, but okay, I'll talk to Scott later this evening. We'll hammer things out because we're ruling together. I'll I'll hammer this out with him. Um, I'm going to show him respect in in front of my children. Um, I'm going to be respectful to him. And what Chloe and Kelsey need is a dad who serves, who rules the house by serving, by laying my life down. And because I failed to do that, what that means is on a regular basis, those kids are going to need to hear the words out of my mouth. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not like King Jesus. Uh, Don't look at me on that one. I, I, I failed on that one.
How about a gospel light? Oh, my goodness. When I think about the women in our church, I guess I'm biased because I've been here for almost five years. But man, do I love you gals. My goodness. I was, I was trying to shoot a text out this week to get ladies to sign up to do that video. And I was thinking about all the ladies in our church. I was just like, good grief. I mean, honestly, and I'm not trying to say this to flatter you, we've got like a hundred women that most churches would be thrilled to have five of you. But I want to encourage our ladies to take this gift of womanhood and embrace it. And show the world around you that womanhood and submission doesn't look like shut up and go over there. It looks like being a prophet of Yahweh that goes before your husband and says, what you're doing is killing our family. And it looks like when your husband comes to you and says, I don't like what you did. You say, I don't like to hear that. But instead of pushing you away, I'm going to pull you in. Would you pray with me, church family? Almighty Father, I've spent most of my life not having a clue what submission was all about. And honestly, Father, most of my life I've had a terrible view of it. And my amazing wife has been the recipient of that. And I'm so sorry. Father, I pray that you would work in my family, that you would work in this church, that you would help us to model womanhood to the world around us where we submit to you where we let you care for us. Church family, would you stand with me? I don't know how the Spirit of God may have worked in your heart during this message, but I want us to take this time during invitation. And I want us just to welcome the Holy Spirit and don't push him away. Welcome him. And when he tells you something you don't like to hear, pull him close. He loves you. He doesn't want to hurt you. He wants to help you. The, the band is going to sing and play. Let's, let's do some business with our, with our heavenly groom, with the one who gave his life for us.